Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 17 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I'm an athlete, a coach. I run Strength Guild, um, actually, some, amongst a bunch of other things. So. Cool. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, owner of Extreme Human Performance, a uh, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and I'm for once in a while, I'm actually not teaching for the next couple weeks, oh, so nice. it's kind of crazy. Hey, this is Mike Russo. I'm a doctor and clinical researcher in Northern California. Awesome. Nice. Okay. Uh, we have the usual mail and news, and then we will get uh, to Dr. Ruscio's uh, origin story. Uh, let me start with this one. Uh, this is from uh, Peter. He says, hi, long-time Iron Radio listener, especially enjoyed your recent episode on fat and fitness alongside the exciting frontier of nutraceuticals. Thank you for your continued focus on evidence-based discussions. Uh, your topic of fat and fitness uh, led me to reach out to you today. I work in analytics for a transportation company, and I'll just leave it at that, where I build uh, models to inform marketing activities. I'm not terribly active during the day, but I train hard in the gym uh, one and a half hours each weekday with mm. steady state incline walking as cardio on weekends. I've stopped progress and I've gotten to an unhappy overweight state, uh, including halted lifting progress. Uh, I have come to trust your judgment and approach over the years, and I would appreciate your guidance. Please let me know your availability if you are. Thank you again, uh, Peter. Uh, all right, I'm going to offer my two cents, and I, anybody else, of course, can chime in. But if you are stagnant, uh, one of the things you might want to consider, I would suggest, would be progression models, right? I mean, if you're, you've adapted yeah. to your current challenge, and you need different forms of stimulus, of overload. Um, there's lots of ways you can do that. Um, there's what I call the anatomical approach, like bodybuilders do, like a three-way body part split or something like that. There's a um, movement-based approach. Again, my words, but uh, that's where powerlifters, they, they focus more on movement, right? Instead of having a day for chest and triceps, for example, you have bench day. It's more movement-focused. Um, there's all kinds of um, periodization-type things, like a mesocycle. You know, for the next 12 weeks, focus on a, a more specific goal. You know, like it, whether it's muscle gain or strength and, and that sort of thing. And then maybe uh, build different mesocycles in the future toward other things, right? From a cardio perspective, you could add variety. I mean, it's amazing to me how similar diet and training are in, in so many ways. And variety is important. So uh, if you're healthy enough to do it and the doctor says it's fine, some high-intensity interval training maybe instead of just the steady-state cardio that you do, you know, build a little mitochondria density, something like that. Um, but I think that's kind of where you are, Peter, these sort of starting to entertain pr pr progression models or bring in some novel, novel stimulus. Uh, I don't know. Phil, what do you think? That's just hard to answer without knowing. Like, it's hard to tell him what he needs to change without knowing what he's doing. <laughs> um, yeah. I know he's going in an hour and a half 
five days a week, it sounds like. But what are you doing in an hour and a half, five days a week? I mean, that's plenty of time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I wouldn't say you need to go to two hours. You know, I wouldn't go there um, most likely. But, I mean, yeah, you need to you, – you have likely, like you said, just uh, adapted totally to what you're doing. And, and are you going in and just doing the same thing over and over expecting – to keep progressing, then probably mm. not. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe it's time to seek professional help. You know, I mean, as yep. far as that goes, you're a busy person. You've got other things going on in your life. Let somebody else think about that for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think that was actually the the point of the email. He was sort of reaching out yeah. in that way. So, gotcha. Uh, insights from you, uh, Mike. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, you know, again, we're just kind of guessing here a yep. little bit. I, yep. I agree with Phil too that. You know, if you're that busy and you've got a bunch of other stuff going on, then, you know, let someone else handle it. Um, we can get back to them. You know, both of us do that kind of stuff, too. Um, one thing to consider, again, depending on what he's doing, he may consider dropping his lifting sessions to an hour and just doing like a half hour fasted walk in the morning, you know, just to get some daylight exposure, get some movement, get outside. Sounds like he's inside a lot of time. He's at a desk due to a lot of his job. Um, I would look at if he's got like any type of watch to look at how many steps he's getting per day. I usually find with people work inside, it's pretty easy to get a low number of steps and not realize it. And a lot of them I've seen do, you know, pretty, you know, more intense stuff at the gym. And then they can't figure out why they're not making progress, you know. So just overall movement. If you look at their day, you've got not much, not much, not much. Ooh, this massive spike right before they try to go to bed. <laughs> mm-hmm. So sometimes changing the pattern around a little bit. And then one thing he could probably do on his own too, from a nutrition side, um, even just on his own, just run a simple three day nutrition log, just, you know, write down everything you eat and drink, you know, not necessarily looking at it to make massive changes, but more or less just looking at it for that increased awareness. And it, it still boggles my mind how often I do that with people who are like, ah, you know, my diet's just really good. It's really good. I'm like, all right, just, you know, fill this out. Let me know where we're at. We'll, you know, see if we need to make any changes. Maybe we don't. In the back of my head, I'm going, ah, we're probably going to need to change some stuff. Every single time they come back, they're like, oh, I didn't really know I was eating that many cupcakes or this or that or, you know, then, or there's some excuse of, oh, you know, I was went out for friends, you know, three days during the week or whatever. So just do that just for a simple level of awareness too. Yeah. I mean, the classic thing, of course, get some kind of baseline assessment, whether it's nutrition or exercise, some kind of assessments, and then do monitoring periodically, right? Sort of think like a a scientist and monitor the uh, small changes towards an outcome, you know. So I think you guys have a pretty good um, rundown on that there. I'll let the the strong guys comment on this, and the nerdy guys like me will just take a back seat until we get into the nerdy topic of uh, (laughs) gut health. (laughs) Well, I am not that strong, so. <laughs> uh, we're all nerds, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, let's quickly just go. There are two very brief uh, news tidbits. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, the first one, this is from the Institute of Food Technologists. Uh, Mike and I are members of that group. Um, they have a nice wellness newsletter that I talk about every once in a while. This first one. The title here is 90% of consumers believe food companies are responsible for healthy diets. Uh, in mm. a survey of more than 1,000 people worldwide, 9 out of 10 consumers responded that they believe food companies have the responsibility to make sure the diet, their diet is healthy. Wow. Um, 52% of consumers said they had a lot and 37% said they had some. 
intention that or belief that the food companies are responsible. Only 9% <laughs> of consumers thought food and drink companies had no responsibility for healthy diets, providing healthy diets. Consumers in Asia were more likely to place the burden of responsibility on the food company. That's interesting. Mm. Wow. Um, however, the survey also revealed that levels of trust in the food industry are really pretty low when it comes to health and nutrition. So think about the irony here. I'm already thinking <laughs> they're, they're demanding, you know, they're placing responsibility on the food company that they distrust. Yeah. Uh, it says globally, doctors and other healthcare professionals were the most trusted sources of health and nutrition information. After doctors, respondents uh, trusted the government uh, and other health authorities next, and then uh, friends and family, uh, which about 15% felt was the most important. Uh, it says wow. uh, food and beverage companies came in very low on the list. Only 5% of people put food and beverage companies at the top of trust, right? So um, I don't know. To me, uh, I already start thinking about well, what about di the dietary supplement world? Like if we distrust the uh -oh, food uh -oh. companies, is the, are, do we distrust the dietary supplement companies even more? You know, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and again, so it says... Our research makes clear the scale of the challenge facing the food industry, says Richard Clark, who is a director of ingredient communications. On one hand, consumers expect food and drink manufacturers you know, to have a commitment to health. Uh, and on the other, many people distrust the very information that they provide. So that's a... That just sounds like a bunch of people who don't want any personal responsibility yes. for anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, worldwide survey. Probably pretty accurate, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> that's one of those, you know, like, uh, I'd have to ask my wife what the exact term is. One of those cognitive conflicts, right? You, you, you can't, on one yeah. side you want this, and on the other side, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not rational. Anyway, um, the next one will probably interest our guest. Um, it's about the nutraceutical properties of starches. So it starts by saying starch digestibility is associated with the glycemic index, for example. There was a recent article published uh, in the Journal of Food Science that explores the structure and the nutraceutical properties of resistant starch and slowly digestible starch. So decades ago, Right, it was found that there was a fraction of starch that's not digested in the small intestine. It goes onto the large intestine where it's fermented by the microbiota, uh, and that fraction was named resistant starch. Uh, this article also goes on to talk about the fraction that is slowly digested, causing a very slow, sustained release of blood glucose, and that's called slowly digestible starch. Uh, so this whole thing, and remember, this is from the food technologist, and Mike and I know these guys are very interested in essentially the attractiveness of a food product in, in sales. Oh, it's yeah. not just about health, but it says uh, the slowly digestible starch and resistant starch have been widely studied. Uh, the interest now for the food industry is increasingly on uh, using them as substrate for the selective growth of prebiotic influenced bacteria, such as lactobacilli, uh, bifidobacteria, etc. cetera. Uh, here's a quote toward the end of this piece it says the current challenge for the food industry is to develop new technologies or methods to obtain heat stable sds or rs right slowly digestible or resistant starches uh, and structures that can resist the changes during food preparation right presumably so we can get the benefits out of it so um yeah i think there, there's some interesting stuff 
you know, in, in regards to that that paper, and and you're seeing some of this research being published, trying to use resistant starch or perhaps um, SDS uh, as you know a, a substitute for sugars, mm-hmm. and and something that can be used as a filler that maybe has a little bit of a you know, sweet taste to it, or or at least can be used as a filler that may also have some health benefit because it, it can probably most notably lower blood sugar. The the best research for things like resistant starch and or their cousin, which would be considered prebiotics, kind of at, at large, would be the ability to lower blood sugar. Second to that would be the ability to aid in constipation. However, the the main problem you run into is as the dose of these things increases, their effectiveness also increases. However, the incidence of gastrointestinal side effects Mm -hmm. increases also. And that's the major ceiling they're going to probably bump up against is to get a a benefit. They're probably going to have a, um, gosh, I would, I would estimate around 20, maybe even as high as 30% of consumers complaining about gastrointestinal symptoms. Because if you look at the IBS population, if, if if you are a little bit more loose in your definition of IBS and you're you're giving the most judicious, or I'm, I'm sorry, if you're, if you're giving the most liberal kind of estimation on the the prevalence of IBS, it may be as high as it's about thirty percent, and that that's a little bit generous. But wow. Um, but if you if you factor in with that functional gastrointestinal disorders, which are similar to IBS but don't fit the IBS diagnostic criteria, then you're you're definitely getting more proximal thirty percent, and it's that subgroup of people that have the highest risk for negative reactions from things like resistant starch and prebiotics. And so that's why I say they may see about 30% of their their consumer base having some uh, negative impacts. I don't think it's a bad idea necessarily. I just, I try to look at these things from a more balanced perspective. And sometimes you get this excitement about resistant starch could be healthy and let's just load all the all these processed foods up with resistant starch well don't forget that people with ibs and ibd actually inflammatory bowel disease also requires crohn's because they're a, a subset of patients that may have negative reactions to this so you, you may solve one problem increase or, or improving the glycemic index of the food so to speak but you may create another problem increasing the likelihood someone's gonna be running to the bathroom after eating it so it, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a balancing act yeah, you know, this is re- reminiscent to me of the the medium chain triglyceride thing, where they were yeah. trying to give people enough right. for performance enhancement, and they ran up against about a twenty gram ceiling. And, you know, not just in people who are prone, but in a- almost everybody. And if only we could get that that performance enhancing dose in there. But yeah, it, as far as tolerance goes, and the onset of diarrhea, it, it was just very difficult to, right? I- at least for that goal, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, and you can use C8 oil a little bit, and it kind of gets around that a little bit. But again, you're still going to run up to that threshold, and it's not as bad as like I'm sure every guy remembers the Olestra potato chips. That uh, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, yeah, leakage. Let's, let's, the leakage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's make a fat that's not processed like a fat. Okay, there'll be no downside of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oops, anal leakage. That doesn't sound right at all. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes for a nice warning on your package. Of <laughs> right, <papers>. that's attractive. <laughs> <laughs> That'll increase sales. <laughs> uh, cool. So we're on here today with uh, my buddy, Dr. Michael Ruscio, who actually was the guy that I seeked out once I destroyed myself after my PhD. So he helped put me back together. Which I greatly appreciate. Um, yeah, so to give us a background kind of on your origin story and, and how you got into kind of focusing on uh, gut health. 
Right, well, well, thanks for having me on, guys. And, and uh, the the kind of short-ish version of the story is when, when I was in college, I was uh, on track to go into conventional medicine. I was your typical you know, type A overachieving college student. I also was a college athlete playing lacrosse. Uh, always had a lot of energy. Always felt generally you know, very, very good. And all of a sudden, I started having fatigue, depression, insomnia, bouts of brain fog, uh, the, the the feeling of being cold and and from a guy who always felt damn near close to invincible this was this was a pretty sharp contrast so i figured well you know this is the field i'm going into this must be what doctors are for let me go see a few doctors and i, I saw an internist a, a generalist and an endocrinologist and and they all said yeah you're you're super healthy you're you have a good body composition you're you're fit um there's nothing wrong with you. And I would come back to, well, did you did you catch the story I gave you when I walked in essentially <laughs> saying that I feel pretty terrible right now? And you get, you know, you get some of these well-intentioned but non-meaningful answers. Oh, perhaps it's stress. Maybe your academic load is too high, blah, 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 blah. And so long story short, it wasn't until I found a doctor that practiced functional medicine, which is kind of say a subset of, of complementary and alternative medicine, who thought I may have had an intestinal infection. And that, that actually ended up being true. We did a stool test and via the gold standard for detecting these kind of things, which is stool antigen recognition, where a microbiologist looks at your poop under a microscope, which is a really fun job, I would imagine. Mm, mm, uh, good they, times all day. Yeah, they, <laughs> they found amoeba histolytica, which is not a very common infection to find in people. It's actually somewhat rare, but it can be very damaging to the intestines. And it was actually that infection that was causing all my symptoms. Now, unbeknownst to me, before this, had, before I had figured this out, I had spent months doing internet research, thinking that I had hypothyroid, adrenal fatigue, heavy metal toxicity, you know, all these things that you read about on the internet. And I tried all these protocols and I wasted quite a bit of time and money chasing down symptoms only to figure out that I missed a major root cause issue in the gut, and it wasn't until I addressed that issue that all my other symptoms improved. And what was notable was I didn't really have any digestive symptoms, and, and this is what can throw some people. But but there's certainly a subset of people who have pretty screwed up guts, for lack of a more scientific term, but the gut problem does not manifest as gut symptoms. It solely manifests as lesions on the skin, as depression, as an insomnia, as fatigue. And so it's it's something that can throw people pretty easily. But after that experience, I I wanted to go into the, the same, you know, route of, of uh, CAM medicine as as the doctor that treated me. And that's what I've been doing now. And and as I've been practicing in the world of, of complementary and alternative medicine, I've been noticing that there is a ton of excess. And there's also a lot of very well-intentioned people and there's also a lot of great work. But unfortunately, you have like a 50-50 ratio of people that are doing great work compared to people who are trying to do great work and I think have the best intentions but don't realize that there is little scientific validity to many of the tests and the treatments that they're doing, Mm -hmm. which is why people are leaving their offices after doing three, four, five thousand dollars worth of testing and 
and you could do $800 worth of testing and get the same results as, as we do in my clinic. Um, and you just have to l know how to use science to learn rather than to footnote your pre-existing opinion and be a bit conservative and a bit practical. And, and you can actually get people very healthy without having to be excessive. And so this is you know, spawned into my second passion in the field, which is helping people with, with this kind of integrative model, but also trying to do it cost effectively and non overzealously. Um, and, and to that end point, you know, we've been doing some clinical research at my office, trying to study these things, various things in the gut, and um, trying to really help move the field forward to being able to help people, which the, the field of, of complementary and alternative medicine certainly can, but not having to turn someone into a health fanatic in order to get those results. So that's, that's kind of the, the long short of, uh, of my story. Cool. Oh, that's very cool. And have you found that most, this gets a little bit in the topic today, but I'll ask you one question and then we'll move on to that after our break. Do you find that a lot of, like you mentioned, well-intentioned, more functional medicine people just get enamored with testing everything under the sun just because you can, regardless of how more stable or the background of certain tests are? it always seems like whatever the newest test is, is like kind of the latest and greatest and sexiest thing. And I can imagine clients poking around on the interwebs come in almost probably requesting those things because they mm -hmm. seem kind of new and sexy. And uh, I don't want that boring basic stuff that has more data behind it. 100%. Absolutely. And I would say I probably spend about 30% of my time in the clinic trying to talk a patient out of a disease they think they have or a test they think <laughs> that they need. And and fortunately now I, I've, I've built up enough of a reputation where people kind of seek me out as their filter and they'll say, I read about this test. I, I know that you're pretty evidence-based and you're conservative, so I wanted to bounce it off you. So it's, it's not so much something that I have to talk someone out of the marketing that they've fallen into on their, you know, uh, during their internet reading. But it, it is a problem. And it, it's certainly, you know, new and novel tends to be thought of as being better. And mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's a fundamental problem that the inflicts some of functional medicine, which is more testing and more treatment equals better results. And I've, I've been saying for a few years now, I think that's actually the opposite of what's true. Uh, for, and if for no other reason, because if you're doing too much testing, you can distract yourself from identifying what the true important factors are. And if you're trying to treat six different lab tests at the same time, it can be very hard to sort out what's helping and what's not helping. And you can confuse your way out of being able to figure out the problem because you've added meaningless information into what's already a fairly variable rich problem which is trying to fix a human being, if you introduce into that a few tests that have no scientific validity, you're now treating nothing, right? You're, 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 but, you're, but you're distracting your brain, you're distracting your, your ability to figure out what's, bother, what's, what's a, a, inflicting someone with these meaningless tests. And so the more meaningless tests that you introduce into the process, you make it much harder as a clinician to solve the problem. Because mm -hmm. think about it, if you're trying to solve a math equation, but someone threw in four random numbers into the equation that meant nothing, <laughs> how able would you be able to solve the equation, right? You need to have accurate data to, to move on. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's one of the main problems is that there's this illusion that more testing equals better results. And I, I would argue it's actually the opposite. Yeah, I think that follows Occam's razor, right? Simplest yeah. explanation is probably the right one, especially when, like you said, it's not just useless information, but it could just be invalid. 
<laughs> distracting right. invalid stuff. You know, a personal story, but um, I had a family member who was struggling a little bit with uh, gastrointestinal symptoms. Still haven't been figured out, actually. But um, as part of what the doctor was doing, just test after test after test, including things like, oh, you know, it might be pancreatic insufficiency. Here, let's try these pills for a while, you know, so we had some, like, <laughs> you know, lipase, amylase, stuff like that. But you're talking about, like, I mean, thank God for in, that we have reasonable insurance, but $2,000 uh, for a month's Ooh. worth of these pancreatic enzymes? And I'm like, oh, wow. just to kind of play with, let's try this and let's try this. And I'm like, well, you're kind of playing on my financial back here, <laughs> right? Right. Like just to, right. to satisfy your curiosity. And so uh, can we can we use a little bit more targeted logic here <laughs> instead of just randomly ruling stuff out? I, maybe that, that, there's an element that has to be done like that, but that was frustrating yeah, well, for us. Well, there, there is. I mean, there, there's definitely, I think, a, a valid element to just traditional kind of empiric medicine. Let's, let's see how this treatment works because sometimes the treatment is really the test. But if you can if you can codify that into a efficient sequence of steps, then you can help prevent waste. And and for example, I would always look to someone having a bacterial overgrowth before giving them something like bile or pancreatic enzymes, especially because something like a bacterial overgrowth in the intestines can actually deconjugate or or, or deactivate the mm -hmm. ability of bile, which is one of the pancreatic secretions. Uh, well, liver, liver pancreas secretions, but um, to to function. So sometimes if you know how to function through these the right way, something may look like malabsorption secondary to a lack of pancreatic enzyme or bile secretion, but it's actually a bacterial overgrowth that's essentially breaking down these enzymes. And if you then treat the bacterial overgrowth, the enzyme function normalizes itself. So you're, you're right, but also if you can organize these things appropriately, then you can be much more efficient. And the reason why I put the bacterial overgrowth firstly is because it's much more common than something like exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I totally see where you're coming from. Uh, very cool. Well, let's take a short break here and then we'll get into the topic of the day, which we're kind of drifting that way, which is uh, gut health and lifters. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks.
Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hey, welcome back to Iron Radio. It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens. And today we have our special guest, Dr. Michael Ruscio. And today's topic of the day is talking about uh, gut health and lifters. And well, I guess one of the things I wanted to start off with, which we talked a little bit about right before this, is um, for people that you know specifically are more on the exercising end of the spectrum, um, any idea about how often you would suspect there may be some gut issues? Because, man, if anyone's been around like the the Arnold or stuck on a plane flying to Columbus that time of the year. It's, I don't recommend being anywhere close to the bathroom. <laughs> it's <laughs> not a fun experience. Um, and just in my own experience with people who are already doing some type of exercise that, you know, anecdotally appears like people have more, you know, kind of digestion issues and things of that nature. But again, that may just be because people have some issue and they're already, you know, seeking somebody out. So any thoughts on that just in terms of just general prevalence and i know that's a very wide topic right and it is uh you know we might be able to kind of extrapolate from looking at the prevalence of ibs in the population which is you know depending on what population you look at worldwide compared to the united states you're somewhere between about 15 to maybe 20 22 percent according to, to various estimates and I would be inclined to think that that's higher in people who exercise for a couple of reasons. One, if people are overtraining, that can, in my opinion, clearly increase one's risk for having maybe not traditionally diagnosed IBS in terms of you check all of the diagnostic criteria for the IBS box, but you clearly have symptoms like gas, bloating, loose stools, diarrhea, constipation, what have you. Uh, so overtraining can do that. And also, some of the supplements that are used are fairly high in, in compounds that can be, or, or higher in compounds that can be noxious or irritating to the gut. Mm. Um, so if you combine those two things, and then also sometimes the people who have the highest affinity for exercise may be cutting out an hour of sleep to get out, to get up an hour earlier and get in their exercise. So now you have not enough, maybe not enough sleep. Um, some additional stress from exercise, you combine that with a pre and post workout drink that may have irritating colors, fillers, or prebiotics in it, you kind of create this perfect storm for people doing a number on their guts. And and it's definitely a, a subset of, of people that I see where, you know, every, maybe 
a few times a month you see someone who's otherwise very healthy and, and it appears they just exercise their way into some some pretty progressed gut symptoms and we have to do some work to kind of unpeel that. So I would I would say it's definitely increased. How much above the general population is really hard to say, but but it's definitely something that I've noticed in the in the clinic. Gotcha. Is there any type of for listeners here, are there any type of, of symptoms or things that they should kind of keep in mind that, ooh, I've kind of got this, this, and this. Maybe I should go, you know, seek out a functional med or physician and kind of get it checked out. Well, they're they're certainly your classic digestive symptoms. So if people have and, and I guess I should maybe step back and say, if these things happen on rare occasion, I wouldn't worry about it. If you ate out and had some spicy food, I wouldn't worry about it. Right? So if, if these things are anomalies, I wouldn't sweat it. But if these things are happening habitually, then it may be something to get checked for. Things like abdominal pain, ref, uh, reflux or GERD or indigestion, constipation or swinging the other way, looser stools and diarrhea or potentially an oscillation between the two, bowel urgency, the feeling of bloating. Uh, you know, these are all indicators that there could be something underlying that that needs to be investigated. So those are some of the easiest. Where it gets a little, uh, you know, more difficult to kind of connect the dots on is sometimes people, and this has been documented most notably for celiac disease, but there, there's also some documentation potentially for non-celiac gluten sensitivity and even for things like bacterial overgrowth. They may only manifest as non-digestive symptoms. So sometimes these things only manifest as joint pain, for example, or as skin lesions or even something neurological like restless leg. So uh, it's not to say that the gut is a cure-all, but certainly someone could be devoid of gut symptoms and having some of these other non-gut problems, which is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about gut health, because it can manifest in such a wide array of symptoms. And then when you correct a problem in the gut, it can alleviate such a wide array of symptoms also. Uh, Dr. Risho, cool. if I can ask, uh, so because of the what you're talking about, in fact, I'm very guilty of the overlooking um, infectious disease, you know, when it comes to like symptoms like that, like, like I deal with some of what you just said, you know, joint pain, restless legs, things like that. Is it possible uh, for the physician to do the wrong like microbiological test? Like, to, the, you know, they send it to path lab. Do, do they do this huge suite of possible offenders or could they miss that in some way? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And, and it can be missed. And, and I think it can be missed equally on both ends of the spectrum your conventional doctor will oftentimes just look for the most strict pathogens i guess you could say things that can cause you know serious infections like amoebas and this is something that would be tested by your your typical kind of ova and parasite so they'll look for amoebas protozoas uh, things like giardia um you know cryptosporidium things like this uh, maybe campylobacter and and that's that's on the one hand. Then on the other hand, there are alternative doctors that may not do a great job with that per se, and, and they may get distracted in some of the into in, your guy's earlier point that the newer and novel tests, which can map out every bacteria 
in the entire world of bacteria in your gut. And unfortunately, these tests are clinically useless, yet it doesn't stop the fact that they're marketed as being clinically useful, not by the people at the top of the scientific food chain. They're, they're pretty clear in saying these, these tests are preclinical. It doesn't stop people from using these in the, or trying to use these in a clinical application, unfortunately. So at those two extreme endpoints, you can miss some simple things. And something that's probably the most common out of all of these is not actually an infection. It's actually an overgrowth of your resident bacteria. And this is known as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Not to say that this is the only thing to worry about, but it's, it's in my observation, the most common thing that comes back positive. And this is where the bacteria that naturally reside in your intestinal tract just overgrow. So it's, it's not a strict pathogen. It's not necessarily considered an infection. It's just an overgrowth. And, and so this is something that can elude testing because this can only be tested via a breath test. And so if you go and you do a three or four poop sample at something like LabCorp or Quest, I do think that those labs have good testing, but this is not part of that test. So it could be missed there. And then on the other end of the spectrum, going back to more of a alternative doctor, doing a mapping of your microbiota where you get an assessment of the entire world of bacteria, that also won't tell you if, if you have something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So yes, these things can be missed. It's not to say that you're missing a serious infection per se, but they, they can be simple imbalances that, that can have pretty profound effects. Well, not that we want people to self-treat, but what could listeners potentially at least consider if they wanted to prevent something like small intestine bacterial overgrowth? Like, are there things that that's lead to it um, or is it the kind of thing that's it's almost random and it just needs to be diagnosed and then treated, right? Well, there, there are things that can increase the, the chances of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, maybe the most notably is the use of acid-suppressing medication, although that hasn't been fully bore out it, it, by the literature, but it does seem there there is at least a, a small increase of risk for when, when someone is using long-term acid-suppressing medication, things like Nexium or Prilosec. Um, and interestingly, there was actually one study performed in about 1,800 patients, and this center wanted to assess what factors put someone at the highest risk for SIBO. And they were looking at things like the use of acid-lowering medications, the use of immunosuppressive drugs, prior intestinal surgery. And out of all these things, interestingly, they found that the two most associated factors, the two most predictive factors for having small intestinal bacterial overgrowth were actually being hypothyroid and not being treated, or ironically, what you were even at higher risk for was if you were hypothyroid, but you are now being treated and, and on thyroid medication. Um, so there, there may be, and I'm, I'm not saying to stop taking thyroid medication if you're taking it, but what this may tell us is there's something unique to thyroid disease independent of thyroid hormone levels mm. that increases the risk for small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. Because there was also an association found for those with hyperthyroidism, meaning they had too mm. high of a level of thyroid hormone. So it, it may be something independent, and, and we can talk about the mechanism if you want in a moment, but um, there may be something independent of thyroid hormone levels that's unique to thyroid disease that increases the, the risk this. So I, there, I mean, there are some simple things there. Also, if people have had food poisoning, that can increase the risk that they may develop this after the bout of food poisoning. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say there's much you can do to prevent food poisoning, although some people 
uh, some you know, gastroenterologists recommend taking antibiotics prophylactically when you travel to things like third world mm. countries or places with without good hygiene, uh, and that that's been criticized. I don't necessarily think that that's needed to be done, but you know that that's one recommendation that floats around out there. Um, but I would I would say simply that focusing on a healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, clean food, and trying to mitigate the use of, of medications that that uh, are either immunosuppressive or acid suppressing would be a great place to start in terms of prevention. And and if someone's displaying symptoms, then just go to work on fixing the problem and, and it shouldn't be too big of a deal going forward. Gotcha. Cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so you're talking about food and lifestyle and everything there too. And I was going to ask this to to Phil. We had just a short conversation on this, and then Lonnie and I'll get your opinion, Doctor Ruscio, about um, probiotics since they seem to be popular now. And every new food, every time I go to the store, it includes some type of strain of probiotics. But you know, a lot of those foods have been around for a long time. And I know you recently, Phil, said you've been doing all sorts of fermented stuff there. How did how did that start? And how's your fermented experiment going? No, it's going good. Uh, well, we've been making yogurt for years at home. And oh, that was, I think part of that was just, uh, we realized you can make a gallon of yogurt for like the price of a gallon of milk instead of <laughs> you know, <laughs> buying a quart for, you know, more than the price of a gallon of milk. So, um, and we have a local lady that we get our dairy from and stuff like that. So we're able nice. to kind of source our own milk and everything. But, uh, no, and then that moved on to doing kefir. And then recently, about a month ago, we started making kombucha, um, and I, it's just my, my wife researches this stuff a lot, and it's just doing anything we can to potentially increase our health. And that was an easy way to do it. And, uh, you know, the benefits seemed seemed worth the while, and it's actually fairly it, – it's painless. You know, basically you put your – your this what they call a SCOBY in your container and let it sit you know, and do its job. So, uh, no, I mean, it's good. I can't tell you, like, right now that I've seen any, like – life-changing benefits but uh you know i feel good and you know uh, yeah i mean so and you found a limit to how much kombucha you can drink well yeah and i was warned from that (laughs) and the guy i got it from like speak don't you know don't don't go crazy on this stuff because you know you'll have uh it'll backlash on you is so um you know we we go through a gallon a week for a family of four uh so yeah and then it, it's tasty. I mean, you throw some fruit in there, and you can flavor it. And it kind of makes it effervescent, if you will, bubbly. Um, so that, and you know, we've, we're a pretty health conscious family, though. I mean, we source kind of as much food as we can locally, and things like that. So very cool. I just got a kit to finally start doing some kombucha coming up pretty soon. Um, do you use much for probiotics or probiotics foods, Lonnie? Not really, actually. I mean, I eat copious amounts of fruits and vegetables, variety of dairy products, things like that. Um, I, you know, I sort of long lines what Dr. Ruscio was saying. I just sort of, you know, I, I have a pretty whole food type diet, you know, and I train and um, that's about it, really. I mean, there's, like you said, there so many foods have probiotics. Last year, I remember at the ISSN meeting, there was a company even yeah. selling, right, the, the probiotic coffee that has some type of heat resistant yeah, spore. Stable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not opposed to any of that, but I've always been curious after just listening to um, interviews on Science Friday and things like that over the years. It's, it seems to me, and maybe Dr. Ruscio can add to my knowledge base on this, I'd love it, but you don't 
rewrite your gut bacterium in the way that, or, you know, um, the profile of bacteria in your gut in the way that a lot of people think you do, you're just encouraging the growth of different subsets of bacteria. Mm. And I'm always curious as to how much, right? How much impact can I have in rewriting this, you know, um, blueprint, if you will? Yeah, that's, that's actually a, a great question. And it, it's one that, uh, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of confusion. And I guess any time a topic comes into vogue, you have more confusion because there's just more more people talking about it. And of course, it's easier to have people you know talking about inaccurate talking points. And, and then confusion naturally grows from there. But you're you're right. You you can't rewrite your bacteria, with the exception of if you undergo a procedure known as a fecal microbiota transplant yeah. therapy. Um, outside of and that's fairly invasive. You essentially take stool from a healthy donor and administer that, oftentimes, sort of like via an enema to a, a sick host, and and they retain that stool for a while in their colon, and that actually can change it can actually kind of retransplant the healthy donor microbiota into the recipient but with probiotics it's a misconception that probiotics colonize you most probiotics do not colonize you and that's been fairly well bore out by the research literature but they do have positive benefits ironically probably more so antibacterial and antifungus than probacterial and this actually may be a good hmm. thing and and the reason why probiotics may be beneficial amongst a few others may be because they they come in and they crowd out and they they kill off overgrowths of bacteria and overgrowths of fungus which then allow the other bacteria that may be dwindling underneath the pressure of these overgrowths a chance to reestablish a foothold and it allows a colony to rebalance itself. So you you can't use probiotics, and it's a common misconception to, to reseed as it's sometimes said on the internet, but they can clearly have a benefit because they may help knock down these imbalances that have been kind of choking out your healthy bacteria and once those imbalances are gone the healthy bacteria can flourish and this sets up the ecosystem for a healthier equilibrium in, in the longer term you know phil um you once mentioned that it, this has been taken to the extent that that there's fecal doping weren't yeah. you the one who yeah. mentioned that a few weeks ago like they identified yeah, the article the, is that uh, yeah Oh, I, I don't have it in front of me, so I, I won't get it right. But there was something that some bacteria that existed only in like elite level athletes and elite. They were looking mainly at elite cyclists. And uh, so these cyclists were starting to or lower level cyclists were starting to fecal dope uh, with these elite level cyclists. And wow. they were like less aches and pains, better recovery, this and that. Um by getting this flora from from the elite level cyclist, wow! Search it into their, you know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, right. That's that's the scary <laughs> part. Like in a not, if this is like doping, non medical, you know, like yeah. almost like underground well, yeah, this stuff. Lady, like, like did it in like a hotel bathroom, right? Like right. how do you? you I don't want to see this. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to even imagine this. You know. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh. You know, there, there, there's something interesting there that I think is noteworthy. One, I would highly discourage anyone from from doing a a non-supervised FMT. Um, now, th now there there is maybe a, a case to be made. To be perfectly honest, for someone that's got something like severe 
ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, and they're up against the wall of have a section of your intestines cut out or try this FMT at home because it's not sanctioned in the States for inflammatory bowel disease. Mm. Okay. I, you can make a case there, right? But for Samantha Smith, who's looking to lose that last four and a half pounds, <laughs> this would be <laughs> a, a terrible decision in, in my case. And there there have been adverse events reported from FMT, mm. including death. Now, this isn't a, a, a small subset, but adverse events have been reported. It's also, I think, important to mention that your your fitness and your health partially dictates your intestinal microbiota. So when we see healthy people have healthier intestinal bacteria, it may actually be the health of the host that's dictating the health of the bacteria. And it's a it's a very common misconception that if you can just focus on changing the bacteria the way that you want to, then those bacterial changes will cause improved health in the host. And that's not generally true. Um, it's, it's really unfortunate. And, and maybe one of the best examples of this is when we come back to looking at the models of irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, and inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, when patients undergo, and, and this is based upon numerous clinical trials, but you, you essentially see this trend where things that feed bacteria tend to have a much higher rate of causing negative side effects in these patients compared to therapies that actually reduce bacteria. And so this is why when you look at things like prebiotics and fiber in patients with IBS and IBD, they're more prone. They can help in some cases, but there's a higher chance of having a negative effect. However, when you look at things like a low FODMAP diet or probiotics, which can be antibacterial, as we discussed a moment ago, or even things like antimicrobial therapies, those have the highest success rate. So there, there's a major flaw in this thinking that if you can just change your gut bacteria, it's going to cause a beneficial effect to the host, especially when you look at many of the clinical interventions that are antibacterial actually have a greater impact than these these therapies that are probacterial. And, and then when you also look at that in, in the context of, we know that exercise as one parameter has a health, uh, it, it, it improves the microbiota in a healthy way. And there's been a few studies that have looked at this, looking at rugby players compared to age and, and sex matched cohorts who were, were not athletes, they had healthier microbiotas. Another study found that cardiorespiratory fitness was a predictor of quote-unquote health of the microbiota. And uh, even more recent studies showing that when someone transitions from being sedentary to exercising, that actually improves their microbiota. And when we add to that the fact that when you take children who are type 1 diabetics who don't produce insulin and you put them on insulin, their microbiota improves. We start seeing this, this factor that the world of bacteria in your gut, as important as they are from a, from a guy who's a gut specialist, you also have to have a healthy respect for knowing if it's a cause or if it's an association. Mm -hmm. And there are 
things that we know are damaging, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, H. pylori infections, uh, candida or yeast overgrowth, that, that these need to be treated. But there's also a world of things that you can do to improve the health of the host that then improves the microbiota. And this is important to mention because we sometimes forget that the, ba the bacteria are existing in an environment. And if the environment is unhealthy, aka the host, then the bacteria are going to be unhealthy. So, yeah, um, yeah I just want to throw that in there as kind of the voice of reason, because as you denoted, some people are really getting uh, very left-winged with some of this stuff, uh, and, and they may do unintended harm. Yeah, two-way street, right? It sounds like yeah. when it comes to host and, and the bacteria, yeah. Right. Yeah, because right. that's kind of my general thought, and correct me if this is not the best approach, but unless someone comes to me who has you know, just really frank stuff that's more like on a disease, obviously I'm going to refer them out at that point. But they have stuff that's kind of yeah, borderline. I usually tell them, I'm like, well, Let's do some stuff related to exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle for, you know, at least three months. And let's, you know, make sure your compliance is good. And then let's just see what the changes are, right? I'm not dealing with anything that's a life-threatening illness, per se. Um, they've already been cleared by their physician. And it's pretty amazing to me how a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times, everything just seems to get better. You know, go in for a walk in the morning, do some breathing stuff, get your breathing to work better, maybe do some meditation, do some exercise, eat better food. And I think a lot of times we tend to just forget how much that all of it is um, related. And I think a lot of people are kind of wanting to look for the, the quick fix at the same time, too. Yeah, I, I agree. And I also think, unfortunately, enough people have been you know, fed this, this story that this super in-depth alternative medicine lab testing can tell you exactly what you need to do to get healthy only to figure out that, geez, I ended up going on a elimination diet, taking vitamin D, fish oil, and a probiotic, but it took $3,000 worth of lab testing to figure that <laughs> out. Right? Um, so, I mean, and there's a time and a place for lab testing, but yeah, I think we've all been fed a, a bit of a line of BS thinking that there's this, you know, unique, we can, we can pinpoint exactly what you need to do based upon your genetics and based upon this advanced lab testing. And if you look at the much of the clinical literature, honestly and objectively, you see that that promise falls short far more often than it actually delivers. Yeah, and it's pretty rare that I ever see someone who has some type of gut issue whose HRV or stress levels just as or breathing is just not completely out of whack. You know, and again, the, the flip side doesn't mean that's always true, right? So once your stress is better, your breathing's better, doesn't always mean that your gut stuff clears up. But at least in my head, then I kind of know, all right, there's probably something else going on. They, you know, probably need someone to take a, a more in depth um, look at it too. And, it, it's fascinating to me how some people will spend, just like you said, three to five thousand dollars on testing that may be useful, may not. But yeah, just spend even half of that on training and lifestyle and nutrition. It's like, oh, that's just that's way too expensive. I can't do that. <laughs> you know, I help. I think it does help in a sense to look at almost like a systems approach, like people who want these yeah. quick fixes, they don't realize whether it's like neuroendocrine or whether it's gut microbiota or whatever it is, you start to have this appreciation that there's a time course for changes to take place after a lifestyle gets put in place. But you know what I mean? These mechanisms, uh, you don't just 
magically become lean or very strong or something like that. But this this is a um, these time courses differ, but it could be weeks or months, and you know that's been our mantra for so many years is that that patience to let adaptations occur. But it is fun to look at these underlying mechanisms. I mean, you get this idea about the the various time courses, I guess, and maybe that can counsel patients, you know, to not be so hasty and expect changes to happen so quickly because you're trying to influence populations of this or that or or, or get certain endocrine changes, you know, things like that. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a balancing act because we, we want to balance trying to get someone healthy as quick as possible, but also not expecting the world to change in a few days. And, but then also realizing when a therapy is not working, right? Cause, yeah. cause the other, the other part of that is, and you hear this sometimes again from well-intentioned, but you know, n- nutritional focused practitioners that you just got to give the diet more time and someone's six months in and they Oof. still feel kind of not almost mm-hmm. not even well. And mm-hmm. it's, it's purported to be a healing crisis or the layering effect. And, and I mean, I'm open to that being true if the right data were presented, but usually my, my BS meter goes off pretty severely when I hear that. Um, and, and usually you should be seeing some kind of an, uh, an, uh, an effect within a couple of weeks. And, and that effect could be, I'm feeling generally better or I'm feeling generally worse. And of course, if you're feeling generally worse, then you need to change your tact. And if someone's feeling better, then the, the most important thing that I look for and what I counsel my patients on is if we're moving in the right direction, let's maintain the course. Now, we may do things to enhance that, but don't, uh, don't potentially sacrifice progress for regression. And what I mean by that is sometimes when people are feeling better, if you do nothing other than give them another month or two, they will continue to feel better. But sometimes if you try to do even more, someone has a negative reaction to that next layer of treatment and now they're worse off than they were before. So it's, it, it is important and time is a factor for healing. So uh, yeah, if you're someone who's, who's grappling with some of this stuff and you're doing something that's working for you, don't be greedy. Don't expect the world to change over the course of two months. As long as you're making slow and steady improvement, then, then give something its its chance to get you to or discover where your peak level of improvement is. Because sometimes you'll get to that peak without doing anything additional other than just giving your body time to heal and, and recover and what have you. Yeah, and that's very similar to training too. Like once I find something that I know works for an individual for training and nutrition, yeah, I'm probably going to keep going down that path. And, you know, sometimes their next program, they're like, whoa, but this looks a lot like my last program. Yeah, because <laughs> the last one worked really well. <laughs> Why would I, you know, do something 180 degrees different? I'm you're probably going to get a worse result. They're like, oh, you know, it goes back to what we talked about the new and novel. There, it's that fine line between I'm trying to balance more of their their psychology of making it just new and novel enough that they're excited about it, they're interested, but yet you know the adaptations that I'm trying to get are going to be along the same path. I'm not going to completely throw everything out and do something completely different. Yeah, I used to have an endocrine prof and his mantra throughout the entire semester, and this was, I remember this after all these years, but was that if you push too hard, the body will balk, you know, so you need yep. to encourage things, yep. whether it's fat loss or maybe in this case, you know, a, a modification of gut bacterial colonies or whatever it is. The bottom line is I think so much of what you hear in the fitness industry uh, is 
it overlooks the fact that homeostasis ruins the day. You know, you add in that extra, oh, I can just make it a little bit better. And, and then you kind of, you, you pass some tipping point, you know, and then you end up worse. You know, like Dr. Ruscio was saying, like regressing in some way. It's like, oops, yeah. you know. Yeah. Cool. So as we wrap up here, what would you say just in general is your kind of top three recommendations for people that are listening to this or generally lifters and, you know, maybe they haven't thought a lot about gut health. What would you kind of recommend like your top three things to them? Uh, great question. And there's a couple of simple things people can do. Uh, the, the first would be one or two dietary experiments. You can try a diet that's low in allergens and, and oftentimes the paleo diet is a good template for determining this. Uh, and if you've tried that and it hasn't worked well for you, you can try a low FODMAP diet. And, and this is a good diet if people do have bacterial overgrowths or if they just have something like IBS or IBD, then this is a very well-studied diet that actually helps to prune back overgrowths of bacteria. So those are two dietary starts that can be very helpful. What is helpful. a FODMAP for people listening who may not be familiar with that? FODMAPs are just forms of carbohydrates that are very uh, good at promoting bacterial growth. They stand for fermentable oligodimonosaccharides and, and polyols, which really means nothing to people. But So what, what it really means is that these are, these are types of carbohydrates that are sometimes seemingly healthy, like asparagus, for example. But due to the carb structure of the carbs in the asparagus, they're very good at feeding bacteria. But if you're someone that already has a bacterial overgrowth and then you feed it, you can actually feel worse. And so by eating a low FODMAP diet, you focus on the fruits and the vegetables in your diet that aren't powerful at feeding bacteria. And, and in effect, you tend to essentially starve those bacterial overgrowths, which, have, which can have a normalizing effect on the bacteria amongst other things. And then that can result in someone feeling better. See, now that is fascinating because so many bodybuilders yeah. will focus on eating almost nothing but chicken breasts and asparagus for weeks at a time. Bro, it's healthy. Yeah, right, <laughs> or like to get lean or whatnot. But yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, and, and it, it may be because when you, when you go on this lower-carb diet, oftentimes you focus on vegetables. And if, if you unintentionally select for the vegetables that are high in FODMAPs, you could definitely run into a, a problem pretty quickly. Mm. So the, the first, uh, and then the other item would be considering experimenting with something known as intermittent fasting, which essentially just means skipping a meal. And some people, especially if, if their gut is in need of, of a chance to rest and recover, will do better if, if, for example, they skip breakfast and have a slightly larger lunch and dinner. And if you think about this from an evolutionary standpoint, we probably didn't, as hunter-gatherers, wake up first thing in the morning and have breakfast waiting outside for us. We probably underwent uh, several, or not several, but at least a few hours of moderate or lower level activity to procure foodstuffs before we could eat. And this fasting time does allow the gut a chance to run important healing and housekeeping functions. So if you're someone that's always kind of following the traditional bodybuilding mantra of a meal every three to four hours, you may want to try experiment with and see if you do well if you skip a meal. And some people probably are already shaking their heads in, uh, you know, mm -hmm. not in their head in agreement or shaking <laughs> their head in disagreement. 
if you're nodding your head saying, yeah, you know what, when I skip a meal, I'm less bloated, I feel better, then this may be a good approach for you. If you're shaking your head saying, no, that's not me, every time I skip a meal, I get hangry, then it's probably not going to work well for you. But um, just don't feel pressured by the old bodybuilding dogma that you have to eat frequently because there there may be a different aspect to this of allowing gut health and gut healing. And, and sorry, not to be too long-winded, but to the question of does fasting impair your metabolism, we did a, a fairly comprehensive review of the literature on this. And what you see is uh, either no discernible impact on metabolism or the majority of the data is showing a slight benefit on metabolism by fasting. So the old thinking that if you don't eat, you're going to go into a starvation response, and that starvation response is going to slow your metabolism – it's not really true unless you're going, you're undergoing a prolonged caloric deficit. But what most people will do when they f- do intermittent fasting, skipping breakfast, for example, is they'll they'll auto-regulate to have more calories at lunch and at dinner. Yeah, um, I'm a huge fan of intermittent fasting when it's done correctly. So I, I would agree with all those points. And then secondly, if those things don't help, someone can try some simple gut supports. Vitamin D can be helpful. There's been a couple of clinical trials showing its benefit in IBS. Probiotics can be helpful. And there's, you know, different classes of probiotics. I would try a couple, uh, and I know that's kind of vague, uh, but see how you do. Um, also, something that can be helpful for people to experiment with is, is what's known as enteric-coated peppermint oil. And hmm. this may not necessarily fix the problem, but it can be kind of a palliative measure. And if people are constipated, they may want to try a fiber supplement. And I'd, I'd look for a, a predominantly soluble fiber because there's two types of fiber, soluble and insoluble. And there's a higher incidence of negative side effects when you use a predominantly insoluble fiber. So I would shoot for at least two-thirds soluble to one-third insoluble. And, and, and that works best for those who are constipated. If you swing more toward diarrhea, fiber may irritate your gut and may not be a good idea. And then there's, a, you know, third and finally, if none of those things work, then you may want to consider a more kind of targeted antimicrobial approach. And this is where certain herbal medicines can be very helpful, things like oregano, berberine, uh, garlic, um, or even in some cases select targeted antibiotics that have been shown to treat things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Herbal medicines, I think, work equally as well. And there's also finally special meal replacements known as elemental or semi-elemental diets where someone does a short-term fast and only uses these meal replacement shakes that are very hypoallergenic and gut-friendly. And, and for the more severe cases, sometimes this is the only thing that produces results, but it can be quite powerful um, when you do get this this therapy targeted to the right patient. So those are a few things. I know that's kind of a lot in, in, a, in a short period of time, but you can get a lot of benefit out of just working through those those simple fundamentals. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you very much for all your time and all the great knowledge here. Um, if people want to get a hold of you or find out more about you, how can they do that? My website's a, a great place to plug in, which is just drrushow.com, which is D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. We have a weekly podcast, a weekly video. We have a, if there's practitioners listening, we have a monthly clinical training newsletter for practitioners. Uh, And also, I have a book coming out February 1st that will give people a a personalized plan to walk through what I just kind of outlined. And it kind of walks you through step by step. We do a reassessment at the end of each step. And and what I like about the way the book is, is laid out is 
there's a number of steps, but we reassess at the end of each step mm -hmm. so that if you're someone with a very mild case, you only have to do, let's say, two steps. But if you're someone with a really severe case, you may have to do seven steps. So it's really personalized to you so that someone, you know, not everyone is doing the same thing so that if you're an easy case, it's easy for you. You're in and out. If you're a more progressed case, then there's the additional resources there for you. Uh, and that should release February 1st. And the information for that will be available on our uh, on our website also. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And if people want to visit you in person, you're in northern-ish California? Yes, I'm outside of San Francisco. I, <laughs> I have a, a clinical practice in, in Walnut Creek, which is near San Francisco. And uh, that's where my clinic is located. We also do telemedicine visits for people via phone or Skype who aren't in our area, uh, or even internationally, if they're in need of help. So yeah, if you're someone who, who needs that one-on-one that -on -one attention, you can certainly reach out to the office also. Yeah, and I, I would recommend it if you're really messed up and nothing seems to be working. I would highly recommend it. I've been out there and, and sat in that very office, and it was extremely helpful. So, Yeah, we recorded a video, didn't we? I don't know. I yeah, know we got a couple of videos. Video. I think I'll have to find them. They're around somewhere. Cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. Right. Thanks, for, thanks for having me on, Mike. It was, guys, and guys, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, I'll see you at uh, Ancestral Health Society coming up in Seattle. So Looking forward to it. Cool. Alrighty. Thank you very much. See ya. Thanks, guys. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community.
The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.